0: I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys.
1: This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Throughout history, Christianity and Islam have battled it out, each vying to be the dominant religion on our planet. Jews, on the other hand, have done everything within their power to stay inside their tiny little communities. Becoming Jewish, to this day, is extremely difficult. We've done a few episodes in the past on the struggles of Orthodox conversion. The fact of the matter is, if you don't go full Orthodox, Israel will not consider you a real Jew. The divide between Orthodox Judaism and other denominations, mainly Reform and Conservative Judaism, is growing wider and wider, and many people find themselves stuck in this divide, trying to bridge the gap. Rabbi Angela Bukdal was born in South Korea to a Jewish father and a Buddhist mother. She grew up in America, and from a young age, she experienced demeaning comments by fellow Jews, doubting her Judaism. And from a young age, she decided she would not let those people dictate her relationship with Judaism. What led Angela on the path of becoming one of the most influential women rabbis in America? How did she pave a way from Temple Beth El in Tacoma, Washington, to singing Hanukkah songs to President Obama in the White House? and ultimately, what helped her persevere in spite of all the obstacles she faced. We're honored and thrilled to be joined by the rabbi and cantor, Angela Buchdahl. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's so nice to be here.
1: Before we get to the episode, guys, I have to tell you about our sponsors over at the Chosen One Card Game. Let's face it, we Jews, were not really good at sports or keeping our opinions to ourselves, but we're not bad at funny we do funny all right the chosen one card game is certified hilarious okay you get a huge set of jewish theme question and answer cards and you match them up and the funny combinations are hilarious. And best of all, of course, it's Shabbat-friendly, so you can play it on Shabbat. Nora and I were playing this game before we recorded, and we were literally cracking up from the first combo. Like, thanks to this game, I found out that Madoff and Weinstein have one thing in common, and that's seeing your rabbi at the strip club. This game is a must-have for any Jew who considers himself a Jew. The Chosen One card game, guys. Visit thechosenonegame.com thechosenonegame.com, and use the promo code 2NJB for a discount. Again, that's thechosenonegame.com, and use the promo code 2, the number
0: 2NJB, for a discount. How are you? Great. So canter, I I never even encountered that word. It's like chazan. It's a
2: chazan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I was uh, probably first drawn and felt most connected to Judaism as a child through music and prayers. And, but I only grew up with rabbis, a rabbi in my synagogue in Tacoma, rabbis at Jewish camp where I went, rabbis on my first Israel trip. So I always wanted to be a rabbi. But once I actually got to rabbinic school, I realized that the, the chazan got to do all the fun stuff in services and decided I needed to do both. How does one become a chazan? Practice, practice, practice. As, no, it that's a joke about how you get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> I um, you there's a whole separate schooling that's also connected to Hebrew Union College, where I went to get my rabbinic degree and to get smicha, um, and it's a separate curriculum, although we share some of the same classes. So I ended up at HUC. The cantorial program was four years, the rabbinic program was five. I did both of them together in six, but I took a lot of summer school.
1: So you grew up in a Jewish community in a, in a synagogue.
2: I grew up in a synagogue. It was a small, tight-knit Jewish community that had been there for um, over 100 years, and my grandfather was among the early people in that congregation. So while I was a girl that was born in Korea that looked like nobody else in the congregation except for my sister, um, I felt like I also had yichus in that congregation because I was a Warnick, and there were 17 Warnicks that had become bar mitzvah in my generation, and so I... I felt very deeply connected. I look up on the wall and I see my grandfather's AZA, you know, basketball picture. So I felt I felt deeply connected. And this was the kind of community where, at least in my grandmother's generation, and she was still there, Jews really stuck together in Tacoma.
1: So excuse my ignorance, but what's a Warnick?
2: A Warnick is my maiden name. Ah, okay. That's my I family, see. my <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Shem Mishpachah.
0: Okay, I see, I see. But, um your mother never converted to Judaism, right? My mother never converted, although she, she was Buddhist. She
2: was Buddhist and still is and considered conversion. But you alluded to this a little bit before. Jews do about everything we can not to encourage anyone to convert. And so while my mom, in many ways, became a part of our Jewish community, she sang in the synagogue choir. She learned how to make gefilte fish from scratch. She even learned a little Hebrew. And I think in many ways her spiritual language fit in with Judaism, but I think that she felt as a Korean woman who was an immigrant who spoke with the like, and had a Korean cultural background, I think she felt, even if I convert, I'll never be accepted as, as fully Jewish. So she never did.
0: How did, how did your father end up uh, meeting and marrying a
2: Korean girl? So the family business, it was a mill working business. It was about 100 years old. Went bankrupt when my father was in college. So to pay for the rest of college, he joined ROTC, which is like an army program, and they stationed him in South Korea as a civil engineer. Uh And then he fell in love with Korea first before he met my mother and stayed, met my mother, ended up um, working as a civil engineer, and stayed in Korea for 10 years.
1: So you mentioned before like you didn't look like anybody else in the community except for your sister do you I mean can you tell us about how you the recollections you have of being kind of outcasted by people in the community was it people in your direct community or was it from other Jewish communities around or
2: fortunately the community that I was in was extremely accepting my rabbi who was a German refugee Reform rabbi was extremely welcoming of my family, including my mother, never asked for us to convert or my or my mother. Um, and we had, as I said, I had a big Warnock extended family that was there. You know, several of them taught religious school, were, you know, sisterhood president, you know, youth group presidents. And so I felt very much at home there. I think the hard part was I never saw myself represented in the Jewish community in any way at all whatsoever, meaning... I never saw myself in any Jewish book. I never saw myself in any Jewish leadership or even in the community. And I think that the hard thing was more when I came outside of my very shielded bubble of Tacoma where I was um, in youth group and I met Jews from California and other places and they said, well, that's funny. You don't look Jewish. This is the kind of thing that I'd hear all the time or more direct challenges like you can't be Jewish. Your mother's not Jewish. Um, My first trip to Israel was much more that way where I had Orthodox Jews on my trip who claimed a halachic definition of my Jewishness, and so therefore I was not really Jewish. I mean, in Tacoma, the funny thing is that because my sister and I were two out of the three Jews in my large high school, we were always called upon to talk about Judaism. So it was always like, Angela's going to light the Hanukkah. What's that thing called? Minoja you know, you're going to light that up for the Christmas assembly. You were I, like
1: the most Jewish person I in was Tacoma. the most Jewish
2: person. And my <laughs> sister and I were, were saying, you know, Jew, people in Tacoma think that Jews look like us. We were the standard bearers, so it was a shock to my system when I went to um, Israel on this trip for the first time. I was already president of my youth group. I was already the Jewish representative. I already thought about being a rabbi. Mm-hmm. I was a song leader. I like, I was holding, holding every leadership position that a kid could hold in my community, and then to be told that actually you're not a Jew. It was. It was not just upsetting it was like deeply destabilizing the
1: the synagogue that you were a congregant of in Tacoma was a reform synagogue
2: was a reform and was
1: there no orthodox synagogue there was there no orthodox community there's
2: literally zero orthodox community in Tacoma
1: oh wow Mm -hmm. okay so you hadn't encountered this kind of
2: I never encountered it until I was about 16 Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm
0: To us Israelis, uh, I jump ahead a little bit, but I guess the, the relation, the, the concept of Reform Judaism here, I I think it's it's not as big as in America now with the stories that recently came up, like last year with the Women of the Wall. Yes, and, but it's but it's it, almost it, an yeah. anecdotal, yeah. and it's also fascinating, like for me, the relationship between Reform in a city like New York, mm-hmm. between Reform and uh, and Orthodox, like do you are there any
2: relations between the communities so ironically i think that it's easier to have good relationships between reform and orthodox in new york than in israel for sure so i have a very nice relationship with the orthodox rabbi that runs the largest modern orthodox congregation on the east side of manhattan rabbi haim Steinmitz. he runs kilat Jeshurun. when he became the rabbi of his synagogue just a few years ago he invited me and the the rabbi of the largest conservative synagogue on the east side. So Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove and myself, um, we were there for Friday night. We had Shabbat dinner with his congregation and then he invited us on the bima. It wasn't for services, the services were earlier, but we sat on his bima on Shabbat and he called me rabbi and we had a great conversation and that started a relationship between the three of our communities and between me with him specifically uh, that continues to this day so that we've done Israel programming together. Now we share shlichat together. The three congregations. We um, are planning to do a trip to Poland. Three congregations together, and it's sort of like now we've taken the show on the road. We, we every time the Israeli consulate wants to show Israelis what like Reform and Orthodoxy can look like together, they have us come on a panel and talk to them about what it looks like, and and a lot of Israelis can't believe that 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 this Orthodox rabbi not only. Um, has a relationship with me but that we have a partnership really in the ways that we share programming especially about israel let's take it back yeah i kind of
1: want to i mean this is a bit of a a, no no, that's interesting actually that that relationship exists i i couldn't imagine a relationship like that really existing in israel it's true um what do you
2: mean by take it back take it back in time Yes, ah, yeah. get
1: back in time. I wanted to ask you kind of uh, this is probably a cliched question, but I feel like it it really uh is fitting in this conversation, but w- what is Judaism to you?
2: <laughs> back to basics. What you said this is a 40-minute interview. Okay, so you <laughs> have 30 minutes. In
1: three words.
2: <laughs> it is um I think it is a way of life uh based on a people with a history and a text and a relationship with God. I think that it is, um, it is an example and a vision for what a world redeemed can look like, which is not just a world that is redeemed for Jews, but for all people. Um, It's the struggle of an Arab Rav that left Egypt because they really believed that they could leave their Mitzrayim, their, their narrow places and go to a place of freedom and that that's, something that every human longs for and so it gives us a a blueprint for how to live that life and how to do this for ourselves and how to help lift up the most vulnerable to have that as well
0: and do you think any, it's beautiful i think we can all relate but do you think that we can that anyone should be allowed in to that club or do you now from after being a rabbi and being so so invested in Judaism, do you maybe get a little bit the obstacles or the harder path that Orthodox demand in order to become a Jew?
2: I do not understand why we as Jews do not feel more um, willing to share this incredible tradition and wisdom. It feels like the part that is holding people back is the is the the tribal part that feels um, to me very narrow and can also border on the racist. Because I think that, that to me, um, I think that this is a um, a way of seeing the world and living in the world and a form of it's not just religion; it's also culture. that That anyone who really truly wants to do it should have. That doesn't mean that that's not without its. Um, responsibility and accountability and some sense of discipline and all of those things. So we happen to have at Central maybe the largest conversion program of any single synagogue in the world. We've been running it for almost 10 years now. We've had over 800 students in the program. been over 200. How is
0: it different than Orthodox conversion?
2: Um, So it's rigorous, but I think the biggest difference is we don't... um, We don't... uh, demand that someone keeps Shomer Kashrut or Shomer Shabbat to be a Jew because that's not our definition of what it means to be a Jew. But it's a pretty rigorous program. You have to uh, take a class, a two-hour class every week for a 30-week period. Um, So that's half of a year. You meet every month individually with um, a rabbi. You have to do like a thesis project where you actually have to do a research project and become expert in at least one Area and write up the project. And people do all sorts of things, but part of what that is to teach them that anything that they feel like they want to learn more on, they learn that they have the ability to do that. Um, Most of the people who are in the conversion program, 90% of them, are people who are in love with or married to um, someone who is a Jew. So they also are generally committed to having a Jewish family and having raising Jewish children. Not all of them, but the vast majority. But we feel like in a country in which intermarriage rates, as I'm sure you know, are over 70% for non-Orthodox Jews, we have a choice. We either can say to the couple that's intermarried, see you later, we're sorry we lost you to Judaism. Or we could say, you could have a Jewish life as an interfaith couple, which is basically what people have said for a long time. And that's part of why my family is Jewish. But we could even go one step farther and say, guess what? It's not just that we'll allow you into um, to swim in our pool. You could actually become a member of the club. <laughs> you could actually be a part of this if this is meaningful to you. And it's an incredible number of people when they understand the beauty and the wisdom and the richness of Judaism, they want to be part of it. And I don't understand why we are not unabashedly welcoming them so into the community.
0: If it were up to you, you opened the gate and if someone wills it it is no dream
2: absolutely and it but to me it's not and it's not like uh that there's no um r- you know road process. to the entry right exactly it's a pretty rigorous process and a, and a pretty pretty rigorous commitment but then at, absolutely i think that people but should be then, able to be part of it
0: and israeli would tell you mm-hmm. okay but this country is the country of the jews right our gdp is thirty thousand dollars and it's a first world country and many people. So if I'm, I live in a poor country and it's, it's, it's doable to convert, what's to stop me from converting, going to New York, converting, and then becoming a citizen in this country and then millions of people would find this loophole? That's, how it, that's the first thing an Israeli would...
2: And what would be so bad about that? I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't. <laughs> you tell me. I'm, I mean, listen. We, I all I hear about is how you don't have enough. Uh, you know, you, you don't have enough the people to do some problem. of the demographic problem. You don't have enough people to do the work that you need to do. Yeah. Like, so what is wrong with saying you actually have people who say I would actually like to be a Jew. I would like to move to Israel. I'd like to contribute to this country in but some way. But how can you
0: tell between people who genuinely want it and just people who? for their own purposes to make their life better go through this process I mean people did crazier things to make their like people go on boats and risk their lives you know and drown to death so what's convert doing this why rigorous why is there such
2: a fear though of them being Jews and like the deep you have to know their deepest heart intention and it has to be about the fact that they want to really be religious Jews or if if they want to better their lives and they think to be a part of the Jewish community is going to make their lives better and they want to contribute to it I, I'm just wondering what is the fear of the this fear is in of some being
0: way taken advantage of I think here in Israel well I think
1: I I, I, would, I wouldn't I would take the, like, economic uh, stance. I mean, and I'm not sure where I stand on this, but if I had to put some kind of, if I had to challenge it, uh, how do you say in uh, in the... In, in Yiddish? The, in the, no, <laughs> uh, in Talmud, they have the uh, kushia. Yeah. If right. I had to put a kushia, mm-hmm. right, um, and challenge the idea, I would say that, I guess the thinking is that, like, there is a value system, and... If the the harder the easier we make to enter this, com- we're trying to preserve the value system. I think that's the mm-hmm. ultimate goal, right? Is like the, of the Jewish community is to preserve preserve a certain okay. value system. That and the will, nationality that right? will be like an olagoyim, <laughs> right? No, not a nationality. It's a value system. Well, okay. So this value is where
2: it gets system. to be a little bit tricky because, like, tell me what the secular Israeli is doing to promote the value system. Honestly, you would I would say to you, okay, he doesn't keep kosher. He goes skateboarding, rollerblading on Yom Kippur because it's a day when there are no cars. I'm just challenging you to say what is the basis of that value system. I, think I actually living, think that the, yeah. the of the converts I have seen, their commitment to Judaism is radically higher than their Jewish partner that usually is born a Jew because they actually choose it. And, it's and not obvious. It for is them. well, and it's not obvious for them, but they usually usually their intention is very good. Listen, is it possible that one out of 100 is doing this just for some economic gain? Yes, it's possible. But the fact is that, like, I, I would say that the vast majority of them come with a deep sense of pure intention that this is truly who they want to be and, and, and where they are in the world. And listen, you know, I think we also get this idea of nationality. This is what I mean by the slightly racial-tinged tribalism that I think is dangerous. Um, I mean, you live in israel so you know jews come in all different colors it's not just uh and why do you think that these jews that started out here and went around the world in the diaspora for 2000 years why do you think they look black and brown and white and yellow it's because they mixed with the local population they mixed with every population they were in because and, and do you think that every one of those converts we ask them why are you becoming a Jew when the ones who married in because they mixed this is just part of the story of the Jewish people the question is once they become Jews what do they contribute and how have they shaped Judaism I would argue that they've it's The reason that we have survived and we've been resilient when other people have died, Judaism has actually figured out how to adapt and bring in the best of the cultures that we've been a part of to make it deeply Jewish. I mean, there's everything that we think of as intrinsically Jewish in some ways we have borrowed, adapted, created in some way. We've some of this we've generated ourselves, but even like a Pesach Seder, we borrowed it from like a Greek meal where they'd have appetizers. So this is our genius.
0: Even some of the Bible is found on oh, absolutely old, ancient Persian other, or Iraqi other scripts. Yeah. So I Stories. would just say
2: that I think that this idea that somehow there's a culture that we're diluting to me is just a masked xenophobia.
0: And and back to the value system, like uh,
1: to y- no. So y- yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't paint it with the racial tone. I I don't think that it's an issue of race. I I would say that the idea is that the 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 easier it is to kind of be taken into the fold, right? Then, then you're diluting not the the nationality or the race. That's that I agree. I think that's boils down to xenophobia. But I'm saying you're you're diluting down the value system because you're kind of putting a bunch of people in that are not necessarily don't necessarily have the same hierarchical structure of values. But that, values that it,
0: and cultures and nationalities. Come together.
1: Yeah, they intertwine, but I'm saying at the basic root of it is this value system that but, we. But I you know, wouldn't
2: say. I mean, on a gross generalization scale, you wouldn't say that the even the values of like a traditional Sephardi Jew is the same that as was a the secular problem, but that Ashkenazi was, Jew. But that was
0: the biggest problem the people who um, made the state happen faced with. So what they did is basically they told all Mizrahi Jews like you
2: need to be Ashkenazi.
0: Yeah, you need to be Ashkenazi, and that backfired.
2: I mean, I think. Uh, it, well. <laughs> In, in many ways, it backfired.
0: In retrospect, but if you look at it today, it, it, it worked. It Listen, worked.
2: this ethnic nationalism is a question that's coming up. You know, nationalism is a big question now. Like, how do you make someone part of a nation? And I think, you know, I would like for us to think more of this as a religious nationalism and less of just an ethnic nationalism because I don't think it's just that. And I think in America, you know, it's, it's crazy to me that... America is a civic nationalism, right, where it's not coming from any particular religion or a particular um, nationality or culture. It's supposed to be that you buy into the values, these democratic values, religious freedom. This is why someone wants to come to America. And listen, we have the same exact things you're saying are the things that are being said in America. But what if they want to come to America just because they want economic opportunity? We've got a president right now who is telling people who are serving our country as Congress people, they say, he says, go back to the countries you came from, as if like, you know, as if they're not really American.
0: the average Israeli, the average Israeli
2: relates to that, I think. I, I think that might be right. I would just say that that, to my American sensibility, feels completely wrong, and I would And I guess that's why I come at it from a different perspective. And I would challenge Israel to think about the way that we could that Israel could be strengthened, actually, not weakened, by a sense that people would actually want to join our people, our religion, our culture.
1: But I wonder uh, on that note. And I don't want to make this too (laughs) political. But like, do you think (laughs) too late for that? (laughs) But do you think that if uh, America was to open its doors to I don't know a million uh, uh, Indonesian Muslims? right? Or not even a, mi- a million is, is small. Let's say 100 million, million. Hundred. Indonesian Muslims. Just 1% do you think percent of that the population change, of Indonesia. Do you think that that would change the nature of what the American, values like you said, sensibilities are?
2: I I, I do. And, and a civic nationalism has to be based on um, a sense of um, a deep commitment to the values, the civic values of a country. So, listen, I'm not saying that that means that as someone who is an Indonesian Muslim couldn't actually really truly buy into the liberal democratic values of America, but they would. that would be, I think, part of the way that we could decide that people can come in. I mean, I listen, I'm not against having immigration policies. I think we need to have policies. It just it shouldn't be that once someone has been American, is actually born in America, or has, you know, immigrated to america under all the right rules and done all the right things and want to serve the country that they're still questioned as being truly american that to me is wrong
1: i think that's actually interesting i don't I, i've never heard it before i'm sure i'm not the first to, to think of it or but i the parallel between kind of immigration policy and conversion policy because mm. they, they kind of are similar in a yeah. sense because yeah. you're kind of yeah that's joining right. a, a a set of values that's true in the end. right So tell us, how did you end up going from Tacoma, where you were the most Jewish person in in, in Tacoma, to ending up in New York? Leading. Leading, a Big, uh, big,
2: important community. Um, Well, the stop in the middle that changed everything was my first trip to Israel. It was 1989.
0: It was... Didn't look like that, I guess. It looked
2: very different. (laughs) (laughs) There were no big skyscrapers. I think the the Gough Tower was like the biggest thing. Going at the time, anyway, it was um, it was a life changing trip, and I how old were you? I was sixteen, and even though it was also the same trip where I I met my first Orthodox Jews who said I wasn't Jewish, um, it was also where I just fell in love with traditional Jewish learning, which I really hadn't had a chance to do before I was sixteen, and and I also just um, engaged in the kinds of questions that I said this is what I want to do with the rest of my life so I also think that there's a part of me that my sort of fighter spirit kicks in when someone says we're not sure you're Jewish I was like oh yeah well I think I'm going to become a rabbi (laughs) and I think that it really um, changed the direction of my life the first thing that it changed was it made me think about becoming a rabbi made me want to be a religious studies major and it made me feel that New York was the center of the American Jewish universe, if not the whole Jewish universe in my mind. And so I really wanted to be near New York. And so that changed also the colleges I applied to, I thought I was going to stay on the West Coast. And instead, I applied mostly to East Coast colleges. Um, I ended up at Yale, was a religious studies major there and wanted to immerse myself in what I thought was, uh, you know, kind of this like romantic, nostalgic, East Coast, close to the immigrant experience, Jewish life, which basically New York still feels that way. So I pinch myself when I think about the fact that I'm leading Central Synagogue in Manhattan. It's it's like beyond my wildest imaginations when I thought I wanted to be a rabbi. I'm leading a community that is, um, filled with New Yorkers who have been there for four or five generations in my synagogue for four or five generations, not just in New York. Um, Also, people who are recent immigrants from at least 20 different countries in my community. We have some of the storied New York families from the Tishes and the Lauders who, like, you know, run – uh, you know, Jewish organizations all over, and we also have people who are homeless in New York who are literally members of the congregation as well. So it's a very widespread. Um, we have all kinds of different family units. We have. Jews of lots of different colors, um, maybe partly because I'm the rabbi there, but I think also because that's New York. Um, so, And they come from all different neighborhoods. And we have a live stream population that is literally hundreds of thousands of people. And so they watch from over a hundred countries. And every week at services, people will come up to me and say, I'm a live streamer from Brazil. I'm a live streamer from um, Israel. Uh, it's really kind of amazing. Oh, from France. It is France. amazing. So um, we have visitors every week. A typical Shabbat, will have 700 people on a Friday night. Wow. Every wow. week.
1: That's and crazy. live streaming?
2: And live streaming, we think we can only guesstimate because we're on a Jewish cable channel called Jewish Broadcasting okay. Service, which doesn't do its numbers. We have Facebook Live, which is somewhere every week around five, three to 5,000. And then on wow. our own central synagogue website, it's estimated around 10,000. So that's a Friday night Maybe we're reaching twenty five thousand on a Friday night, but high holidays, it's over half a million easily.
1: Oh wow! Mm-hmm. So, can you maybe you can give us a bit of uh, a, a bit of the history of Central Synagogue and generally the Reform movement?
2: Okay, so Central Synagogue this year is celebrating its one hundred and eightieth anniversary. So it's older than, you know, most synagogues in Israel, aside from like. The synagogues. And in Europe. <laughs> the temple, right. And even your. so many of them are gone. Yeah, are gone. Right, sadly. It was started by a group of Bavarian, like, German Jews. They came in the 1830s. And for the first 50, 60 years, the sermons were all given in German. The minutes of the synagogue were all taken in German. They all spoke German. And um, it was in about the 1880s. That was when the development of like reform Judaism started to happen. Um, In the beginning, by the way, all our rabbis were imported from Germany. Like they were trained in Germany and they brought them over to America to be the rabbi. Some of them didn't speak English very well. So in the 1880s, uh, the reform movement and movements in general were sort of developing. And we really identified as a reform synagogue. And so and even earlier than the 1880s, we had adopted some reform practices, including doing something called confirmation which you probably don't know about it's a 10th grade ceremony that replaced bar mitzvah for a while in reform, in reform movement so anyway we have the longest standing confirmation service in america just to give you an example of that anyway i would say that our community it was always um an upstanding kind of like flagship congregation we have a beautiful moorish um building that seats 1400 people it was built in 1872 this building and um When they built it, it was only 140 families in the congregation, and they built it for 1,400 people. So we call that chutzpah. They sort of felt like, we want to show that we have arrived. They built this enormous, towering, Moorish, you know, four-story building when there were still dirt roads and horse carriages in Manhattan. So you have to just imagine what it took for the Jews to sort of say, this is who we are, and they put it right smack in the middle of Manhattan. Um, And so... You know, it's a congregation that has um, relentlessly been reforming. And what I mean by that is it's always adapting and changing. So, you know, among the early reforms, they moved to English sermons earlier than most people did. They had um, they put an organ in early on. They um, always had mixed seating between men and women. They never had a mechitza um, I. when
1: did when did this kind of branching off happen cuz i, I I'm, again forgive me my ignorance but like the the branching off from ref, of reform cuz as far as i know like until the 1800s judaism was like was basically judaism orthodox right yeah or what you would
2: consider like you know traditional although to be fair i would say that judaism has always been reforming and changing even like Mm -hmm. if you look at the talmud i would call the talmud a reform document in that Mm -hmm. it was trying to understand how do we now adapt we're no longer agricultural we are now more urban the
0: whole Hasidic movement was a was a reform
2: as well so while you're right in that there was kind of always a a way that people were connected to halakha that was, even though the variations of it would change, but I would say there was a way that Judaism was always kind of reforming. We also Mm -hmm. don't obviously sacrifice animals at a temple anymore either, so we made a major reform with the destruction of the temple, but we continued to reform over years. But I would say that the reform movement, the way we think of it, happened in the late 1800s in America, a little earlier than that in Germany. And, um, And when, as a reaction to reform, conservative uh started because they were sort of like that's a little too much for us we want to be more yeah. tied to tradition and then of course orth- orthodoxy said but but there's sort of we're the real judaism <laughs> and they and they kind of put their claim down and that was called orthodoxy so the movements kind of started to really differentiate themselves and national movements started to happen in the late 1800s and uh central synagogue's rabbi his name was kaufman i'm sorry alexander kohut he was in a big debate with this other rabbi named Kohler, Kaufman Kohler, those debates were so big that like the New York Times would write about these big rabbinic debates in the 1800s, which is kind of amazing to imagine that that was like newsworthy for the New York Times. But that was our rabbi. But what led them to branch out? This feeling that they wanted to be American, that they wanted to embrace more universal values, that they... Pork is tasty. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, they were responsible for things among the first smicha of the first ordination of reform rabbis included a trafe banquet in which they Dafka served shrimp and pork because they wanted to say, <laughs> this is not what Judaism is about. I will tell you that to be fair, it's not just a rejection of those things. it was an embrace of more prophetic Judaism. And prophetic Judaism was saying the kind of a famous line comes from Isaiah 58 where we say, "This is not the fast I seek, you know, on Yom Kippur. You're sitting there fasting thinking you're so pious and so religious, but you're actually ignoring these poor people who are on the street. And this is sort of was the call of reform. Reform saw orthodoxy and or sort of traditional Judaism. They were more concerned about whether or not a little bit of milk got into their meat pot than if that pot was actually being used to serve people who are hungry right outside the street. So early Reform Jews were responsible for starting almost all the – Service organizations that happened that helped immigrants that came in, that you know, federation, um, uh, burial societies. So, reformed Jews sort of said, Really, what Judaism is about is helping each other. I know, like, the joke now is that, like, you know, reformed Jews invented tikkun olam. I-, I find that that feels like a little snide, and there's and, and I don't yet- get
0: it. I don't get the joke.
2: Oh, you don't get the joke. Well, so, like, you know the, the 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 criticism is that Reform Judaism is only about Tikkun Olam. It's about repairing the world. It's about nothing particularistically Jewish. It's about only like doing social justice out in the world, mm-hmm. and not about sort of religious practice. Okay. And listen, if that's going to be the worst critique you can say about Reform, I'd yeah, say we'll take it's it. Not that bad. But uh, to be but I think and, that there yeah. is a sense that that's said now with a sense that like Reform Jews are not practicing. Um, Judaism more religiously or with as much observance, but I would say that early reform really took on this sense that we need to be, we need to be out there in the world and embrace egalitarianism. It was the first movement to say, you know, women should be equal in this in this religion. And here's what I would say: there were laws in halakha that I think everyone would say goes against what our moral inclinations say. For example, like the case of aguna, like a woman who's chained. I don't think there's a single Orthodox Jew that would say that we feel okay about that. They're trying well, to find loopholes. You,
1: just for, because I, I don't know. Okay, but so an I'm aguna sure
2: is um, is the status of a woman. Get, the who, whole thing with get. Exactly. Okay, not, ag- the <laughs> <laughs> not the app. Not the rideshare service. Okay, so a get taxi. And aguna is a woman who's married um, and her husband um, either dies and his body's not found or he leaves her and does not want to give her a divorce. And she becomes a chained woman, which means she is no longer allowed to get married again. If she marries again or has children, her children will become mamzerim, which is a status, which is a horrific status in our tradition where those children can never marry anyone else but mamzerim. But basically, she's not allowed to go on with her life. And it's all up to the man. And basically... Here in
0: Israel, I don't know in America, but in Israel, you have cases of women who are like for decades won't get the get.
2: Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, they'll put pressure on the man to give the get, but they won't always do it. And you also have cases where women, their husband dies somewhere, like serving in the IDF, and they never find his body, so she's still chained also just because of that, because they can't prove that he's dead. So it's a horrible status. I think every Orthodox Jew and every person, every Jew would say this is a horrible thing. And yet there's a sense that that's the law. We can't do anything about it. Now, I've learned that where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way. But for some reason, on this issue around women, there has not been a way that they've figured this out, and that frustrates me and angers me. But I would say Reform Judaism said, this: there is a clear moral issue here, and we're not willing to say that halacha, which we believe is divinely inspired, but still the work of human hands and men in particular, we're willing to say, we actually think when there's a moral case like this, we are not bound by halacha in those instances, but right? But what's
0: the red line, or yareg vebal for, you know, for reform judaism
2: does it cause harm is it moral i mean i i think that like for me you know listen i hear orthodox jews tearing their hair out about oh what do we do about people who are gay it's an abomination not all of them but some of them actually care and feel like it's horrible i say we know it's horrible we know there should be dignity for gays and lesbians in our community so we are just Not bound by that understanding. Here's what I would say. It's not that I say just throw the law away. I understand that Jewish law is the word of God interpreted through human beings. And sometimes we have interpreted God's will wrong. But if it's subjective,
0: then can't I, uh, I don't know, I'm a Jew in Texas. Can I make a congregation of Reformed Jews who think that we should all carry arms and and, uh, kill those who seek to harm us? And start and say this is my Judaism and
2: So this is I mean, listen, this is why Reform Judaism is difficult in that there has to be integrity in the process. And I don't think that people should we have a very strong case of precedence in Jewish law, right? So there's a sense that you should be making that decision not just on your whim of the day or the social pressures of a moment, but it should take precedence into account. You should have a sense of People who write Reformed chuvot, because we have those responsa, um, look at the, like the vast corpus of Jewish law and text to kind of base their de- decision. But they're also truly saying, what is the moral calling of our time? Because this has to be a living Torah. And it can't be stuck in some, in some past. And we have evolved as human beings. And I think that it has to be able to evolve. And now, the fact is, Orthodox Jews do the same thing. They do it slower. They're not always honest about how much they've changed. But they're still also changing.
1: So I, I'm a secular Jew so this is probably playing more devil's advocate but uh to me it seems like one of the strongest i guess cases f- in favor of orthodox Ju- Judaism is the idea that it preserves Judaism throughout like we've had these laws and these these rules and these guidelines for thousands of years and they've managed to keep alive the Jewish faith for you know through through a time period that has kind of deemed other religions, like, you know, irrelevant. Um, and and it's managed to survive using these guidelines. So it's like to come and, and throw them out. And again, but, I'm a and, secular Jew, and, so so and, I, I can't really... To uh,
0: add to that, also the notion that we are people, it's a nation. It's not only about religion. And if it's a nation then you know you cannot no but now you're changing my question no but it's all
1: my question is
2: because it's different in israel and america actually my,
1: my question is is there uh is there any value to kind of being very 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 careful with kind of how much we change and and also the nitty grittiness of the laws and like you were talking about before not letting a drop of milk inside you know and again, I'm a secular Jew, so I don't I eat meat and milk and yeah. I eat to bacon. Us it's complete it's nonsense. Like, it is. So I'm not and this kind of goes to the whole nation thing. But like is there any value to that real strictness that preserves it? Is there any any kind of claim that
2: I'm glad that there are orthodox Jews that are alive and well in America <laughs> and in other parts of the world. I will tell you that they have not really grown as a movement in the 200 plus years that there has been orthodoxy that's like really it, meaning it's, it's about 10% of the Jewish community. It has remained that even though they have a pretty high birth rate. It might change with ultra-Orthodoxy right now in America where they are actually really truly have an extremely high birth rate. But let's just put it to the fact that it hasn't grown that much. 90% of American Jews are a different kind of Jew than Orthodox. And if there was not Reform Judaism, which would... A, have accepted women in leadership roles. I can promise you that a lot, a lot of women would have said, I don't want to have anything to do with this religion that doesn't even treat me equally. I will promise you that gays and lesbians, which is 10% of our community, minimally, um, would say, if this religion only sees me as an abomination, why would I want to have anything to do with this? I can promise you that Jews who live in places where they are, there are not a lot of other Jews to marry, and they fall in love with someone who's not Jewish, if they had been only told, if you marry someone who's not Jewish and fall in love with someone, that you're out of Judaism, we would have lost, I'm promising you, like most of American Judaism. So I think that Reform Judaism has been the reason that Judaism is thriving and surviving in, a, in not just surviving, thriving in America today. And I actually think it is such a shame that you don't have more of a Reform Judaism in Israel because I can almost guess that most secular Israelis, like – would find meaning in a Judaism that's not about whether or not you keep kosher, because frankly, most of us think that that's not actually what Judaism is all about. Um, That's not what makes you Jewish. But like finding strength and wisdom in the text, meaning in like how to live your lives, like wisdom on business relationships, human relationships, family relationships, you know, true like guidance. And it feels like that whole legacy is lost to most secular Israelis who think that Judaism is this orthodoxy that is breathing down your neck and and defining your social... Taking our money. Taking your money, not <laughs> serving in the army, like a gazillion things. If that's what religion is, most of you don't want to have anything to do with it, and I understand. So I actually think it's really upsetting to me that there's not actually a different path. Now, I see seeds of like different paths in Israel, like forming everything from secular yeshivot to Hiloni rabbis, who knew that that was like a thing that to me as an American that sounds like an oxymoron but I've heard right. that there are Hiloni here, rabbis yeah, here, yeah. Because, because I want Israelis to feel like they have access to this incredible richness of the Jewish tradition which actually, you know, I can't believe it. I won't name who this is but it's an Israeli diplomat sends his kids to the same Jewish day school that my children go to and he said, my daughter has learned more about Judaism in her two years in America than in all her years living in Israel. Now that is a pathetic statement and Israelis should feel ashamed of that that you have to go to America and go to a Jewish day school to learn about Judaism. We're in the Jewish state.
0: Here when we have, a, a, uh, like, with a kippah, not Bennett, who's not really, or like, light orthodox, uh, being the minister of uh, education, and he wants to add a little bit of Jude, Judaism studies, then, it all, like, there's a whole havoc of Hadatah, religious. Beca-
2: Religious coercion, system. but yeah. the, the, problem, the problem is because religiousness here has only been, um, you know, this extreme kind of ultra-orthodoxy, and it's been very repressive. We're traumatized, uh, yeah, I guess, and people are ignorant. So,
0: let's get to the fun stuff. <laughs> how, Hasn't this been fun already? <laughs> this has been really fun,
1: but, uh, but this is going to be more fun, because how did you end up in the White House singing to
0: Obama? Yeah. And how do we get to sing to Obama? (laughs) And what did you sing to Obama, and what would you demonstrate? Um,
2: I think that uh, um, I'm not exactly sure how I got asked. I think that his Jewish liaison knew me and um, knew that Obama would get a kick out of having a female Asian rabbi lead the service, so... um, so yeah, I was very honored to go. I got to bring my kids. We got to take a picture with him next to a great big Christmas tree because even though it was a Hanukkah party, all the Christmas decorations were still up. And uh, I got to, I just said the brachot for lighting the candles and um, and we sang Sur, Uh And um, and he gave me, yeah, he gave me a big hug. He laughed at my joke. It was, it was a really, it was an amazing experience. What well, was That's the joke? Awesome. <laughs> um, I said that Hanukkah is about, Religious freedom, and I said that, you know, our country was based on those principles of religious freedom, and I said, but I still, and, you know, and equality for all, I said, but I, I still think that our founding fathers could not imagine a day when there would be a Hanukkah party celebrated at the White House, officiated over by a female Asian rabbi for a black president. (laughs) And he said, yeah, you don't yeah. think they, they imagine that? I uh, said, I don't think so.
1: They're turning That's over nice. in their graves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so uh, could we get uh, maybe a demonstration of uh Sur? We're kind of putting you on the spot right now. Yeah, on but, the spotlight.
2: Uh, um, So in the summertime, you want me to sing Maot sur? No, <laughs> anything. I don't know, anything. Anything goes. So we just passed two baavs, so let's do, we'll do a, a song from Shira Shirim. Ani yashena vili bi'e vili bi'e kol do di do fek Ani yashena vili bi'e vili bi'e kol do di do fek Wow. Thank so you nice. so much. So nice. Thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet with you and argue with Israelis is always fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> should do the national sport, right? Olympics. Yeah. Um, so before you go, like if someone wants to, do, do, does your uh, synagogue accept donations and stuff like that?
2: Sure. And we have visitors every week. People are always welcome. Kabbalah Shabbat is always at 6 o'clock on Friday night and it's open to everyone. We love having visitors. Like your website? And my website CentralSynagogue.org. you're on social media yes i have a public figures page rabbi angela Bookdahl page and central synagogue has a page cool twitter Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i haven't done that (laughs) yet can't go down that road okay (laughs) (laughs) it's a dangerous path sooner or later i know i know i'm trying to avoid that
0: (laughs) okay well before we go we have a collaboration with the jewish journal you can find them at jewishjournal.com they're a jewish uh, news source in los angeles and check them out. They have great articles, great podcasts, and you should totally go to Jewish Jewish Journal. Journal. Dot com. com. And, and
1: also, we do this on our free time, guys, so if you want to uh, donate, go to 2NJB.com slash
0: donate. And this is, let's maybe mention Kevin Davis, the uh, top yeah. fan of uh of Number one 2NJB fan. And a big supporter of the show, and he... Uh, thanks kevin told us we have to have angela (laughs) and he was right so thanks thanks kevin and thank you rabbi angela really it was thanks for coming It it was amazing thanks thank you bye